Do you like drinking beer in the garage with your friends on a Friday night and just talking about movies, music, pop culture in general? Well then, my friends, I have a great podcast for you to check out. It's called the Ten Cent Bear Night Podcast. My name is Ray. I am the host, and I set out to prove things beyond a shadow of a doubt every time I do one of these things. So let's hang out. Welcome to another episode of Deluxe Edition. I am your host, Casey Shearer. With me, as always, Ray, the podcaster. Good afternoon. How are you, buddy? Oh, I'm feeling good today because we just did a great interview. Really good interview. Really, really good interview with John Ross Bowie. He has a new book out, No Job for a Man. Check that out. John was on the Big Bang Theory and a show uh, speechless. We didn't even get to talk about. This was uh, such a great interview. Um, John has already agreed to come back. Just so good. I told John this right out in the beginning. Uh, I was not a fan of the Big Bang Theory, or (laughs) I didn't even know who he was, you know, before they reached out to us. And uh, I mean, this this was awesome. I'm really I'm like a big fan of his now. Yeah, it's a, it's always fun because this one was exactly what I always say I want the uh, interviews to feel like. It was like hanging out with somebody that y- you don't really know a lot about, like one of your friends, like you just met your somebody and you hang out with them and they tell you all kinds of really cool shit. That was like yeah. what this was. Yeah, this was really, really fun. Check it out. We're going to get into it right after the house cleaning. We are a part of the Deluxe Edition Network. You can find all of the other great shows over at deluxeeditionnetwork.com. And uh, guess who the podcast of the month is this month, Ray? Uh, is it uh, Horsing Around with the Red Horse guys? Nope. Nope. Is I it, fucked uh... up. I fucked up on the last recording <laughs> because we record so early. I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> it's Ray. Uh, Ray's the podcast yes. of the month. Yes, Ten Cent Beer Night Podcast is the podcast of the month in December. So if you're listening to this in January, it's not me anymore. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, where can people find you, Ray, while we're at it? Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook, Ten Cent Beer Night Podcast, all smushed together, real nice and tight. And you can find me on T Public, where I peddle my fucking wares endlessly trying to make a couple of goddamn nickels. But uh, you know what's cool about uh, T Public right now there, Casey, that you didn't even know? One of my designs is a bootleg deluxe edition shirt right now. Oh, snap. Yes, well, it will not be there very long because I'm going to move on to other podcasts on our deluxe edition network, and I'm going to bootleg their shit next. Bootleg merch, I love it. Yeah, we'll have to get we'll have to get uh, Turnpike James uh, on again and talk about uh, 
stolen merchandise. Hell yeah, um, I've got uh, I've got my bootleg on the way. And uh, we're one week before Christmas, so if you order today, you'll uh, there's a, there's you know I know you need your gifts out there, so uh, I know yeah. I know our listeners haven't done any shopping yet, so go to T Public right now and order some uh, some of Ray's merch. It'll be yeah. there just in time. Excellent. And if you'd like to get any of our merchandise, <laughs> you can go over to whatamaneuver.net slash collections slash deluxe dash edition. If you'd like to find us on Instagram or Twitter, we are at deluxe edition pod. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash deluxe edition or join the YouTube channel. And uh, I will send you the. Recording. Hey, hold on. Whoa, 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 whoa. You just said patreon.com deluxe edition. You left off the pot at the end. Sorry. You do that actually every week. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. Well, I'm trying to get people to watch the show. Head over to YouTube and watch the shows, and you'll see the banner at the bottom where it says Deluxe Edition Pod. If you want to find the rest of the shows, head over to deluxeedition.show. And now our chat with John Ross Bowie. JRB. Hello. Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah, yep. buddy. Excellent. I feel like I'm yelling. <laughs> now um, we can hear uh, you fine. Okay, good. Hello, mm-hmm. guys. Hi. Nice can you hear us here. all right? Yeah, just perfect. Cool. Great. So uh, I got to start with uh, with this. John Ross Bowie. Uh, why that's, is... That's, that's wh- correct. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I've been practicing that all week. <laughs> guys, this has been great. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so I have to know why the... Middle name. Why do you use the middle name? Oh, um, that's a good question. Um, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, when I joined the Screen Actors Guild in 1999, um, there, well, actually, there still is a, a British actor named of John Bow, B O W E. Um, and every time I saw his name in print, I did a double take. <laughs> so I figured if I'm doing a double take at this guy's name, uh, I should, I, I should probably, you know, I think everyone else will also so it, it there was no one there was no other uh john bowie or Bowie in the union and then i i, I kind of just like the the rhythm of it um my father was very proud of having named me john ross um for a very uh john was his father's name uh and there was a there was a half native half scottish politician in the 1800s who led the cherokee uh <laughs> on the trail of tears named john ross look him up and i'm named for him we are not even remotely cherokee we are scottish uh, but it was one of my dad's little like uh this isn't even in the book i just wrote this is just a weird little thing my dad did um and uh so i just sort of you know, because he had helped me join the union by loaning me the money I needed, uh, I figured the least I could do was was honor him with uh, all three names. Um, yeah, and then Very the Bowie—that cool. <laughs> uh, is the the Bowie is the proper Scottish pronunciation. I get a lot of flack for it, but I swear to God, uh, it, it's Bowie, and um, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> See, I like it because if somebody doesn't do their homework and they're talking to you, they're gonna fuck that name up every time. They will fuck that name up every time. 
Yep. Very reliably, they will fuck that name <laughs> up. Yeah. Um, and in different ways, too, because you go, you know, if you most Americans will say uh, will say Bowie. Um, and again, I don't you know, I don't mm-hmm. uh, get pissed off or anything. I, you know, and, and a lot of times I won't even if it's some like morning guy in a uh, in a market <laughs> that I'm never going to visit, like call me Bowie. I don't I'll go with God. <laughs> um, but um, uh, and then the chunks of the American South will say Bowie for Jim uh-huh. Bowie. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second I, I go to the UK, they look at it, they say, hello, Mr. Bowie, what's your business here? And it's great. I love it. I'm, I'm just here to have my name pronounced right for a few days. <laughs> and I'm he- then I'm heading back. <laughs> well, you mentioned the book. It's great, man. I mm-hmm. finished it today, right before, oh, cool. uh, finished it this morning, actually, before, uh, wanted to uh, finish it before this great book, man. Uh, I, I want to be honest with you. I have not finished a book in a long time. Oh, okay. And I finished. <laughs> I finished this, and it's really good. I it's. I highly recommend this, man. I. Oh, I'm going to be honest much. with you. There's there's a a few uh few things I'm going to be honest about here. First time I've read a book in a long time. Okay. And before your, I guess it was your publicist or, uh, I'm not sure who reached out for you to be on the show to promote this book, but. I had never heard of you before. I was not a a, a fan of the Big Bang Theory, um, <laughs> at all. That's a uh, that's a great lead in, Casey. This Way is going to go, great, Casey. This yeah. is going real well, Casey. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't like your face. Would you like to? Um, would you like to insult like his family or something while you're at it? Um, your kids are weird. Uh, yeah, just keep, keep digging, Casey. You're doing great. This is, this is good. But, I mean, they don't all have to be Jimmy Fallon, but Jesus Christ, man! Wow, <laughs> I'm, I'm totally messing with you. Go ahead. I know, brother. But I want to say, man, after this, after reading this, or, or you know, during the processes, I have become a, a big fan of yours, man. This it was a oh. really, really good book, man. And uh, like, thank you for one of my that. one of my questions um, when I started reading this because of how good it was. Uh, was going to be if you had ever written anything else, but then uh, I found out that you wrote a book about the movie Heather's. I did. About 10, 10 12 years ago, I wrote a book um, that was part of a series. Hang on one second. Uh, yeah, about 12 years ago, I wrote a book um, that was part of a series of books called the Deep Focus series, which was a uh, a collection of, of short books about um, certain movies that, don't usually get written about. So, you know, you can, you can absolutely get a book about Citizen Kane or Seven Samurai or the 400 Blows. Um, but they were looking for films that, um, maybe aren't considered to be classics or have a cult following or what have you. And I picked Heather's cause it's, it's near and dear to my heart for a bunch of reasons that are, are detailed in that book. <laughs> but yeah, it was a good series. Actually, it was Jonathan Lethem wrote a book about they live, which I really recommend a guy named Matthew Spector, who's a terrific writer, wrote a book about the sting. Um, a guy wrote a book about the original death wish, which was really good. It's a good series there. You can still find them online. They're all, the eBooks are all still available. I think the print is out of, uh, is out of print, but yeah, that was my, that was my first book. Are you familiar with that movie, Ray Heathers? Heathers. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Remember yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little bit older than you are. I'm 50. So Heathers is right in my wheelhouse for, what I uh, what kind of movies I enjoy a lot. Heather's came out while uh, while Ray and I were in uh, were in high school. Yeah, and uh, it's a hell of a high school movie. Yeah, um, so <laughs> uh, it came out literally. I saw it the end of my senior year 
with the second consecutive Heather that I dated in high school. <laughs> so it is, it's just true. So it's an, it's near and dear to my heart, that film. And I've gotten to work with the director a couple of times since as an actor, which has been, oh. you know, a, a crazy full circle moment for me. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I love that movie. How does something like that work when you write, when you're writing a book about something like that, like that someone owns the rights to and all that? Um, you know, you're not necessarily, you know, it's not like you're making a remake or you're novel or you're doing a novelization. You know, I, I was writing sort of a, an analysis of the film and sort of my personal history with it. So it's essentially it comes under the uh, comes on the heading of criticism, I guess. Um, you don't need the rights to it. You, you're just writing a monograph. We had to clear some photos. Um, uh, just to make a couple visual points, but, um, no, that's, that's completely within your rights to uh, write a book about a thing that you love. Um, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty easily done. Yeah. Yeah. I became familiar with that movie. Are you familiar with, uh, Joe Bob Briggs? Yeah, sure. He, he has a show on shutter, the last drive-in and they played, uh, they played that one of the, during one of the seasons. Heather's oh, interesting. interesting. Yeah, it was really cool. Cause I had never seen it before that. Like uh, as as it goes with a lot of these uh, movies and things that we talk about on this podcast, I I'm not familiar with them until I have to research them. Uh, but yeah, cool cool movie. I'm yeah, gonna, it's great, right? It's real good. Okay, so yeah. can people find that book? Um, as I say, I think the um, I think you can get an e copy. You can get the ebook still. I'm pretty sure if you find a uh, if you find a print copy, let me know because I'm running low. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> I think it was a very, there were short runs. They were short runs. Um, a little publishing house called Counterpoint uh, put it out. Um, but you can still find the ebook, I think. Yeah. Cool. So, what was your writing process like for this book? I, I noticed at the end of the book, you thank a lot of different uh, publishers. For, like, were these all stories that you had put out before? Or um, some of them had come out in. Some of them had been part of a one-man show that I did literally 20-plus years ago um, that was just focused on the time that I was in a punk band while working in corporate America and kind of you know talking about that weird sort of duality that I had for a few years there. Um, there were some things that were just sort of uh, shows that I did or, or monologues that I did at shows like The Moth but weren't actually The Moth, you know. So storytelling shows here in L.A. Um, I had written for a, a a lawn dead newspaper called the New York Press in New York. So, yeah, there were a few people I had to thank who had sort of given my writing a chance in smaller bites. Um, the book itself, as it as the as as it exists, um, took a while um, for various reasons. I was working. I was busy. Um, it uh, it came to me just as speechless um got picked up and speechless was a was a very busy three years there um and i put the book down for a little bit um because i was having some mental health stuff that made it a little uh complicated to sit down and write about myself um i just kind of had i had the bandwidth to show up to be funny on my sitcom and i had nothing else <laughs> i had absolutely nothing left in the tank but i i worked that stuff out and finished it early on in the pandemic and uh, this great little house in New York, Pegasus Books, decided they wanted to they wanted to put it out into the world. Yeah. But it was um, it was a good process. I have a great agent named Todd Schuster, who was was really good at um, at doing things like not telling me what to write, but just asking the right questions. You know, 
Like, can I hear more about this character? Can you, <laughs> can you explain why this meant something to you? Just little, you know, no, no pitches, no, like, oh, you should say this, not ghostwriting in any sense, just a real, like knowing the right directions in which to nudge me, which was really helpful. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned your punk, the the punk band. Let's talk about that for a little bit, because uh, I want you and Ray to talk about this a little bit. You, <laughs> you, you guys had to have. I can't believe you guys haven't crossed paths in, in all these years. Well, we may have. Hang on. Hang on. Ray, what's your last name? Uh, well, my stage name is Rhubarb, and okay. uh, I played in punk bands for a long time. I was a part of, uh, here in Cleveland, the Hostel Amish, which one of the, the better punk bands out of Cleveland, in my okay. opinion, mostly because yeah. I was a member, but sure, you know, sure. that's yeah. just my opinion. But uh, I believe you were in uh, Egghead. I was in uh, I, I was in Egghead. I, I can't believe I, I, I have to confess now to you. I have not heard of the Hostel Amish, but I've just Googled them. And I can't believe because I, I here's the thing about me. <laughs> I love a band with good shtick. Oh, we, we had shtick for days. I <laughs> love a, good, a band with good shtick. And this is good shtick. And yeah. it's a victimless crime, too, because like, who's going to tell the Amish? <laughs> Who's and if you the Amish? and if you do tell them, what are they going to do about it? They're pacifists. Are they going to do about it? You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's um, uh, yeah. It's uh, this is this is great. I like. You know, I was talking about another band. Um, did you ever get? Did you ever come east? Did you ever play uh, northeast at all? Uh, well, we're from Cleveland, so right. um, they've been everywhere. Uh, they did a lot of their touring after I left, but I've been to like you know, New York and stuff like that. So did you ever cross paths with a band from Boston called, uh, I think they're from Boston called the upper crust. Uh, I know of them. I never got to meet them, but I know who they are. Yeah. The upper crust had great shtick. The upper crust were, um, dressed like 18th century fops <laughs> and played, yeah. um, just like big seventies arena rock. And their, their album was called let them eat rock. And, uh, <laughs> they did the whole powdered wigs, ruffled things. Yeah. And, and and this is where this is where I really had to give it up for them. Chops for days. They could really fucking play, <laughs> um, which was infuriating. It's like usually it's one well, or the other. Egghead, it, Egghead tend to lean on the side of shtick. We were better at shtick than playing our instruments a lot of the time. But these guys just had they were the full package. And it was such a niche package, too. Like, I don't know who is looking yeah. for Little Lord Fauntleroy references <laughs> in their arena rock. But <laughs> oh, they were great. That, uh, yeah, that's a that's a big part of, of uh, you know, when you're a local band and you're just trying to make it and you're just trying to come up with something different. And you're yeah. the first thing you go to is the shtick. You're like, all right, what haven't we seen yet? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, and I, I, I love that. Do you know the, uh, you must know the mummies, mm -hmm. the mummies. Yeah. Are that's a great gimmick. Yeah. Uh, yeah. you know what? Uh, uh, what was it about a year ago? You were on punk rock karaoke. You did suburban home. Mm -hmm. That was about a, I think it was about a year ago. Uh, then, and, uh, yeah, about two years ago, actually at this point, something like a year that. And a year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. It's somewhere in there. And like, I love the descendants. Milo is one of my all time favorite singers. Oh, hundred percent. Uh, the, cabin. You did it in your own way, and it was really, really cool. Oh, thank you. I might actually have been wearing this sweater, <laughs> <laughs> wearing this very Argyle uh, uh, sweater while I was doing Suburban Home. Yeah, I kind of figured I couldn't quite 
hit Milo's notes. So I thought I would do it like a tight ass suburban dad, you know, yeah. and, and uh, which uh, uh, to some level I am. And I have <laughs> my, my late uncle loaned me some golf clubs. So I use them for yeah. the video. Uh, we, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> and I got to I've never met the descendants, but I got to meet all the punk rock karaoke guys. So, you know, Stan yeah. from the Dickies and Greg from Circle Jerk. It was just it was a real uh, it was really, really fun to uh, to do that. Yeah, because most of the guys that come on there, like I've seen Tony Hawk on there a couple of times, and he gives everything he has to try and sing those songs as best as he can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, and I I love it, but the way you did it was totally original, and it's it was just different, man. It was oh, really I cool. I appreciate that. I appreciate that, Rhubarb. Thank you very much. I, uh... I I I watch that thing all the time, man. I love those videos. Mm. You know, they're great. I can't remember. There was one. God, I, I met her at Punk Rock Bowling, too. There was one woman who did Give It Back by the Dickies, and she did it with, like, puppets. She had, like, all this production yeah, design right. that went into it. <laughs> and it was cool to hear a woman sing that song anyway, because Leonard's voice is crazy high as oh, it yeah. is. Um, but she did. She had, like, production value. <laughs> and I really, I was really impressed. Uh, I was really, really impressed by her. And then I loved, um, the whole reason I got into it is because my buddy Will Wheaton did Police Truck mm-hmm. with them. Yeah. And um, Will, who sells himself short, he's like, oh, I'm not really musical. I can't really carry a <laughs> tune. He was great. Yeah, he did really good on that, too. He was another one. I love when they bring in the actors to sing on those things, because then you get a, a sense for like um, the, the ones who actually know punk rock. Like some of the guys come on and you can tell they're reading the lyrics <laughs> like you can see their eyes go down to the paper. Amazing. Amazing. No, like they I, don't. Uh, even, they don't even bother to to learn the song. They're just like, yeah, I know to, this song. To yeah, put uh-huh. it in in acting terms, I uh, I have been off book on Suburban Home for some thirty years now. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I uh, that came that came pretty easily to me. Yeah, I I yeah. I, I, I had that one nicely memorized. <laughs> I kind of forgot that Ray's band was named the the Amish. What was it called? The Hostile, the hostile Amish. Amish. Hostile, hostile Amish. Yeah. So that actually brings me into one of my questions. Your first tour, John, as a as a as a punk band, led you to Honeybrook, Pennsylvania. That's right, it did. That's right, dude. I grew up in Reading, Pennsylvania, which is right nearby. Uh, my my grandparents actually lived in Morgantown and then lived in Honeybrook later. <laughs> Honeybrook uh, is a suburb of Reading for all intents and purposes. Yeah, basically. Um, I mean, it's not that, that far. is crazy. How, how in the hell did you get a gig in Honeybrook, Pennsylvania? <laughs> I know, right? Band, for a punk band. Um, like, where was it? First off, it was the probably the best show of the tour. It was the first night of the tour because we were based in New York City. So Honeybrook would have been like two hours, 215 mm-hmm. from New York. And it was if every show had gone that well, I, I wouldn't be talking to you fucking peasants right now. I'll tell you <laughs> that. Um, I it was I, I it was it was incredible. We were like rock stars for like 35 minutes up there it was insane. But um this is like 1996, right? So there there's internet, but you check your email about twice a day. Um and there was sort of a loose network of of promoters here and there. And I kind of drew out a map. I was like I want to go south. For one thing, I was the guy in charge of of booking the tour, which is a terrible idea, but I honestly was the most qualified to do it, but that's just bad news for the band. That's just a really <laughs> low bar. Um, but I was like, we're going we're to go down as far south as we can and then come back up. And that's, that's the plan. So let's look at 
we played Jersey all the time. We always played Jersey. So I was like, let's see if we can get into Pennsylvania. And we looked, nobody was biting in Philly, but I found this promoter in, um, God, it would have been probably Maximum Rock and Roll's Book Your Own Fucking Life, which oh. they used to put out every couple of years, yeah. which had a contact list for every promoter in the United States and elsewhere. And 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 when I say promoter, I mean the guys who were like renting the VFW hall or the 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 Amish Grange house or whatever it was. And it was, by the way, some sort of like weird pen dutch uh building <laughs> that was probably at one point used to to burn witches but uh had been repurposed as sort of an all-purpose <laughs> community center and they rented a pa and you know whatever band uh came the furthest got the largest chunk of the door which was a um you know it was a real it was you know it was a punk rock house show for all intents and purposes it was great and um we ended up in honeybrook and we killed. We did. It went so well. It was so weird. We got a big chunk of the door. We met this great guy named Tom. You know how everyone there would just go by their first name and their band's last name. So I don't remember Tom's real last name. <laughs> Martin, maybe. But it, we all called him. His band was called Third Year Freshman, which you know, Chef's Kiss. And uh, <laughs> and he so Tom Third Year Freshman. Um, <laughs> It was one of those punk guys with wealthy parents, and he had an RV, and he drove us back to his parents' house in the RV, which he called the Bitch Getter, and we stayed. <laughs> we stayed in his parents' elaborately finished basement. Uh, it was hilarious. Um, yeah, but yeah, that's so crazy. You're the um, you're the uh, second. Uh, well, not the second, but I haven't met anyone from Honeybrook since I played Honeybrook. <laughs> So congratulations. That's really exciting. Yeah, well, close. I, I've been in Honeybrook. I, I've worked in Honeybrook. I, and am I, never... I crazy? Is there a is there a town nearby called Blue? Is it actually Blue called... Ball? It is called Blue Ball. I'm not crazy. Yeah. 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 Okay. No, no, I'm sorry. Is it? Uh, no, Blue Bell. Is Blue it? Bell. Wait, but if ah. you but if you but if you're driving, if you're doing 60 down the freeway or down the highway, you're going to say <laughs> you're going to go past that and go, hang on, everyone. <laughs> what did that not. say? <laughs> There's that, and then right near Scranton, there's a town called Scott Run. And if you look at Scott Run really quickly, you're like, oh, that's Scrotum. We just passed a town called Scrotum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, it is Blue Ball. It is Blue it Ball. It is Blue Ball. Okay, yeah. yeah. Just Google it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch of those uh, weird Honeybrook, towns in the gateway to Blue Ball. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of good... Uh, there's a big smorgasbord in Morgantown that we used to go to all the time. Like, you go there on your birthday and get a free free smorgasbord. All you awesome. can so, uh, so when you lived there, how many birthdays a year did you have, Casey? <laughs> <laughs> I told you I never lived he there. He never actually lived. His parents nah, lived there. Uh, <laughs> He's been very clear about this. He's, it's clearly a touchy subject. Uh, um, I lived in, I lived in <laughs> Temple, Pennsylvania, where all the mushroom farms are. Uh, actual like mushrooms or, or like wait, uh, psychedelic <laughs> mushrooms or like mushrooms? Well, that, probably, like, but no, oh, yeah, like, okay, like Giorgio mushrooms. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, they're all mushroom, grown in mushroom temple. capital of the Northeast. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> well, Honeybrook is um, 
It's great because it's, you know, it's a lot of uh, bored, disaffected kids, which is, you know, I mean, that's money on the table for punk rock. I mean, that is yep. your bread and butter when you are on the road. Um, you're going to have a lot better luck playing uh, Honeybrook than you are a couple of nights later playing Baltimore, um, which I don't remember going. We went over OK, but we made no money. And, you know, parking was was incredibly expensive and it was a whole thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I consider myself very lucky to have visited that town. Yeah, I remember in, in your book, you said uh, you were still spending Honeybrook money by the end of the tour. Like you, we were. That, that's we where were. you made all your money. <laughs> we were still spending that sweet, sweet Honeybrook cheddar. Um, they, you know, they probably do make cheddar in Honeybrook. I shouldn't say that. They probably, I wouldn't be surprised if they actually make cheddar. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so you grew up uh, listening to punk, right? Kind of was like your your getaway, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I. I I'd love to meet someone who really genuinely grew up. I got into it when I was about 14, <laughs> right before, right before I left uh, junior high. Um, I got into the Ramones and, and then just couldn't get enough of the stuff. And I was just going around buying records by punk bands I'd heard of. And if they had funny song titles, I just dove right in and I, I got, I, I was mostly very, very lucky with that you know there are a couple times where where i i you know picked up a seven inch by the vatican commandos and i'm like oh these guys don't quite live up to the promise of their name but i uh, <laughs> but uh i i got into the dickies that way and uh oh god doa toy dolls so many good bands just because they uh they had some funny song titles that was uh that, that tell us that story about uh the dickies uh, halloween 1987 that that's a good story with uh meeting stan lee for the so first time i i went to go see it was the second or third time i'd seen the dickies and they were playing halloween night in new york city with a couple of local bands um hardcore legends murphy's law and underdog i believe were also on the bill dickies were headlining um and my to back up real quick, my mom worked sort of on the outskirts of publishing. So she, she, um, did sort of what they used to call typesetting, but they were already doing it on computers, like big hulky desktop things. Um, and my ticket that I got had Murphy's law in really, in a really <laughs> big typeface. <laughs> um, and I would have said typeface because again, my mom worked in publishing and the Dickies were in a smaller typeface. And I took umbrage at that. I was offended <laughs> on behalf of the Dickies. So I'm standing in line with a couple of friends and we're waiting to get into Irving Plaza, which is still there. Um, a terrific old ballroom on like 15th Street uh, on the east side near Union Square. Great venue. Saw a bunch of great shows there. And we're standing in line. And I'm just really struck by the fact that Murphy's Law, who have only been around for a couple of years, are are and are not closing the show, are in a bigger typeface than the Dickies. <laughs> And who comes down the street but Stan Lee, uh, the guitarist from the Dickies, who I recognize from album covers. And there's something about punk rock that makes you think you can talk to these people <laughs> in a way you can't talk to actual quote unquote rock stars. There's just something about the way punk is structured um, the smaller venues, the fact that they actually, you know, the Dickies will famously read their fan mail as their as their very own song says. And I just felt like, oh, I can I could just call out to Stan. I go, hey, Stan. He goes, yeah, man. He walks over to me and I go, um, what's the deal? Why is your why is your name in uh, in a smaller typeface on the ticket? And he's like, 
And we see that. He, he grabs my ticket and he's looking at us. Well, that's fucked up. We're headlining. We should actually be in a larger thing. <laughs> I'm going to be right back. And he takes off with my ticket. And then he dashes back real quick. Oh, here, collateral. And he hands me these novelty glasses, these shades that have uh, crazy lights around them. <laughs> and then takes off. And my friends are like, John, you're a fucking idiot. You just <laughs> lost your ticket. You just gave your ticket away to someone who was ostensibly a fucking stranger, by the way. <laughs> so your friends didn't know that it was Stanley. They didn't recognize him. No, they I mean, they could tell from my reaction. I was like, Stan sure. The Dickies, you know, like, oh, Stan from the Dickies. This is, you know, this is going to be OK. He's going to, you know, he's a, right. and, and they're also thinking like, oh, he's a fucking, you know, he's in the band. He's going to forget about us. He's going to fucking ditch you entirely. And I'm there and I my heart starts to sink, too, because like <laughs> this means if I don't have my ticket, my friends are going to go into the show and I'm going to like take the saddest subway ride back up to my mom's apartment. <laughs> this is going to be a colossal fucking bummer. Like 15 minutes later, Stan Lee comes back out, hands me my ticket and goes, thank you so much, man. They gave us like 200 bucks um, as sort of a settlement. Uh, <laughs> they feel really bad about it. Thanks so much for pointing this out. I appreciate it. And I said, my friend said you weren't going to come back. And he goes, what? And, and lose these. And he takes his novelty sunglasses back. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, I'll see you in there, man. Thanks. And uh, and then I, of course, turned on my friends instantly. I, I was not a, I was not gracious in victory by any stretch. I was like, you fucking assholes. I told you he was going to come back. And I had, yeah. because of punk rock karaoke, the good fortune to tell Stan that story. And he doesn't remember me, but he remembers the 150, 200 bucks or so. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, he's in my phone now. We we chat occasionally. It's great. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, but I mean, that was a huge thing for me um, on a couple of fronts, aside from just being like a, a, a fun anecdote. It gave me that real sense of the line between audience and performer in punk rock is very porous. Oh yeah. That's uh, I, I can confirm that because I've played hacky sack with GBH and, and drank on their tour bus with them. There's, there's no line. You're just doing things. You're just hanging out. I, I, I yeah. a friend of mine walked up to Dag Nasty one time and said, I would like to interview you. And they were like, uh, we probably better do it in the van. And next thing I know, we're all in the van with Dag Nasty. 19, like shortly thereafter, yeah. like a few months after, after that uh, 1987 Halloween show. But yeah, and I think when it became time for me to kind of switch my career around and decide in my late 20s that I wanted to give acting a try, I think there was a part of me that thought, on some subconscious level remembered like, Oh, just get up and do it. Just, you know, there's, there's no difference between the guy on stage and you just get up there and do it. And that was, um, yeah, that was, so, that was huge. So does the acting community act, are they the same way that punk rock is like, you just go in and everything's cool like that. Or is there no. like layers to it? <laughs> no, but, uh, there's layers and there's gatekeepers all over the place, but there's still opportunities to DIY shit. You know, there's still like, I, I mentioned earlier that I had done a, a one person show about um, my time in the band and, and sort of how I was paying for the band by working at these horrible corporate jobs, doing untold damage to the earth. Um, and uh, by writing that show, that got me a manager, which got me an agent and that got me auditions. And then that turned into jobs. So there was a, it, yes, show business can be super, super corporate, but I did kind of DIY my way into it anyway. 
Um, and I think that's even happening more and more, you know, for better or for worse, people are being discovered on YouTube and TikTok and such like that. And, and, you know, we can talk about, um, whether that is a real meritocracy or not, but Mm. there is a DIY spirit that is running through certain corners of show business, which is kind of refreshing and feels like home. You know, it's like, it's a quick jump from there to, uh. I mean, shit, it's cheaper than pressing your own seven inch. Back me up, Rebar. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. And right? that, that, that actually reminds me of, uh, it just popped in my head. Uh, the little punk rock interviewer kid was just in Terrifier 2. Oh, he was? I got to yeah. see that movie. He's I hear it's the, so fucked up. He's, it's fucked up. It's real fucked yeah. up. But I kept trying to figure out who he was because he's older now. Oh, hilarious. And I kept looking at him like, I know who that is. Who the yeah. fuck is that kid? And then I figured it out, and I was like, it's the little punk rock interview kid. And I was like, That's son fantastic. of a bitch. That but yeah, great. back yeah. in the day, man, we'd all be making seven inches, and you'd have to, like, we'd all had minimum wage jobs, and you're just trying to figure out how to put anything out, like 200 copies of a seven inch. And now, yeah. you, now you can go on YouTube, release crap, like even what we're doing right now. This had been impossible in the 80s and early 90s. How would any, I mean, and it's also interesting too, because the whole world of podcasting has created a talk show minor league, which is great, you know, because there was a time when there was absolutely nothing or there was Carson. (laughs) Yeah. Right. You know, and there (laughs) was, you know, you know, there was, it was like a tiny little like zine or there was, or, you know, you, you, you somehow managed to get on Letterman or something. And podcasts have created this wonderful farm system of, Mm-hmm. talk shows for people to do to promote <laughs> yeah. their let's say you had a, a a memoir that had the misfortune to come out the same week as matthew perry's hypothetically speaking <laughs> and uh and you still needed to promote your book one way or the other and and uh, the podcast uh world has made that possible it's great man well, you imagine, are quick imagine such a situation god damn you're quick with that shit man that's awesome I have uh, I have one more thing to say about the the punk the punk scene and all that before we move on unless Ray has anything for you uh, after that. Now I'm um, going to stop because I I could talk about punk rock for hours and hours and hours and hours and I, I'm sure we need to get to some other things. So I see us all going right, well, in that direction. Yeah. Well, one line that really stood out to me in your book um, was this: "It has often been said that punks are nice people pretending to be bad people, and hippies <laughs> are bad people pretending to be nice people." Uh, I can't speak for punks on this, but like I, I like kind of did like a short run with Phil and Friends back in the, I don't know, early two thousands. Which uh, uh, you 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 followed them? Yeah, like. Okay. Quite a bit, like on the East Coast, and like you're 100 percent right. Like I've met a sh- fucking shitload of asshole fucking hippies. I, you know, they're like the the best of them are just chronically irresponsible, and then the worst of them will absolutely fuck your girlfriend. They are. It is. It is astonishing how often that has been proven right. There's an amazing. There's another amazing line. Um. Uh. Well, first I, I went to. Uh, college at uh ithaca college which is this uh very sweet very crunchy little town in central new york um and it's very very hippie and i met a lot of hippies who were incredibly unreliable people and then years later there's a line um on 30 rock where jack says uh he's talking about something else he goes it's a universal rule like never follow a hippie to a second location i was like oh my god that's all i did all i did at Ithaca was follow hippies to a second location that was not there. 
<laughs> yeah, man. It's uh, like I've I've gone to so many festivals and like I've seen like the behind the scenes of like hippie people, man. They're, they're yeah, they're some of them are, are really shady, shady people. They're shady, shady people. Yeah, they can be, <laughs> and it's all like peace and love and coexist. And I, I just, I don't know. You stole my weed. Why would you? Come on, man. Uh, yeah. You don't this, need I money would, for rent. <laughs> I'll never forget this. I was at a festival. Uh, was, I think it was in Hunter Mountain, New York, or uh, it might have been in West Virginia. I'm not sure, but the location doesn't matter. Uh, this It was like... They look you know, not, similar. They look I I mean, was, I've been yeah, to both. Yeah, I've yeah. been to upstate New York, and I've been to West Virginia, and there's, there's similar rolling hills. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this was like... I was all fucked up, you know, as well as just about everyone else there, and we're mm-hmm. walking... I'm walking through, and... There's not a ton of people around and it's pitch black and there's just this guy standing there with this sign and he's like uh verbally assault me for five dollars. <laughs> like he's just begging for money. Like he, he just wanted people to insult him for money. <laughs> oh my god. Uh well, okay. I mean, is that you know, okay, great. That's gonna give you a really shitty worldview, but um uh I mean is that he's offering a service, you know, is that Better or worse than the guys who just need a miracle ticket, man. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I speak. I, I'm, I'm some, I'm not fluent, but I'm conversant in hippie. I can, <laughs> yeah. You know this, right? Yeah. That, the one finger up in the air, yeah. one finger up in the parking lot. One no. ticket, man. Mm. Uh, I just need one. Get the fuck away from me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's move, move on now. Uh, let's talk about your dad a little bit. Okay. Um, First of all, what is a page? Oh, uh, yeah. So my father had um, a few jobs in his life. Um, and the only job he really loved was um, in the business he did not want me to go into. Um, my father was a page in the NBC building in the early 1960s. And a page is sort of a gopher. Um, it is, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, Scooter on The Muppet Show? Scooter's a page. Yeah. Okay. Fair, right. <laughs> and yeah, no. And, and the more, the more famous example is Kenneth on, uh, on 30 rock. 30 rock. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. He, he was, Kenneth was actually in the NBC page program and they give tours and they escort guests to their rooms and uh, they deal with very, very small security issues. Um, and they, the more famous guests, they're the ones who make sure that the, uh, the deli tray is, is sitting there and, and, uh, and is, covered and there's no flies on it they, they just sort of are jack of all trades and it has led people to writing gigs and acting gigs and um, executive gigs there's a lot of people who've come out of the uh, NBC page John Krasinski started out as an NBC page actually but my dad apparently as much as he enjoyed the gig just felt like you know, as the title says, show business was no job for a man. And he uh, went into the paper industry, which he hated for 20 plus years until they fired his ass. <laughs> but yeah, it was I actually did a, a an interview while I was in New York a couple weeks ago promoting the book a couple floors away from where my father had worked at 30 Rock. Um, he'd, he'd been a page um, focused on Studio 6A, which is where. The Tonight Show was and now is again, but this was during the Jack Parr years between, uh, if you know your TV history, between Steve Allen and Johnny Carson. So that was in, obviously, New York City. They moved to Ohio after that, right? 
Yeah, they did a couple years, um, or like a year, no, I think two years in, in a little town that I've never heard of outside of the context of my parents called <laughs> Coshocton, Ohio. Yeah, I know where that is. Do you? Okay. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Ray, you're, you're in yeah, I'm, I Yeah, I bleed and die with uh, Ohio here. That's that's my, my state there. Uh, yeah, Coshocton's down south. There is nothing in Coshocton. There's fucking nothing except this paper uh, plant where my dad was working for a while, Um um, in an administrative position and he was there for two years. And, uh, yeah, again, Coshocton, the only time I've ever heard of Coshocton is when my parents mentioned it. <laughs> and that's probably still the only thing there that and meth heads. That's it. Yeah. Um, although, although, although there was, and I just Googled them while I was writing the book, <laughs> there is a small community theater that my parents were briefly involved <laughs> with. And That's... it was, as far as I know, the last time they ever got up on a stage was doing, I think this is probably where you were leading me, Ray, but, yeah. um, as far That's as what I was, that's what I was trying to do, trying to um, do that. The, uh, there was a, um, they were involved backstage and they were just about to actually do roles on stage. Um, and they were, I, they told me that they were really excited about it. And then my dad got called back to New York and uh, I think it was a dream deferred, you know, my father, my father was a massive fan of TV and theater and film, and he had a great voice and he was, you know, it was like a leading man, but he was a good looking guy. You know, he's a handsome, handsome guy and uh, dark black hair, piercing blue eyes. He was he was a striking fellow um, and he was quick. Um, he had a meanness to his humor, but again, that's his generation. Uh, I think there was a big part of him that really wished he'd given acting a try. And I think when he didn't and when his son did, and when his son got a footing, I think that was hard for him, which yeah, is that actually I have yeah. in my, my notes here, uh, father jealous. There's a, there's a part <laughs> in your book where you, where he actually seems a little jealous about it. He cops to it. He uses that word. Yeah. He, um, it was very strange and it was a very weird thing to hear from your father, but he, um, was sort of increasingly dismissive of the early successes I had as an actor. And these were not enormous things, but like a commercial here, uh, a small, you know, three line film role there, nothing crazy. You know, this was not overnight success by any stretch, but I was getting a footing and, I, I kind of called him out. It's like, you just seem really dismissive about the stuff I'm doing. And it's, you know, I don't need to be coddled, but it's weird how dismissive you are. Oh, well, yeah, I guess I'm, I guess I'm just jealous. And uh, I, I took a mental note to never say that to my kids. <laughs> um, and thus far haven't. Um, they're young still, though. They could still, they could absolutely lap my career at some point. We'll see what happens. Yeah, they're both. And when they do, the... I'll be fine with it. I'll be fine with it. <laughs> they're both your interview into, woman. Uh, <laughs> they're both getting into uh, the arts as well, right? Uh, yeah, uh, Nola's definitely got the acting bug, um, but she's grounded though. She's got, um, y- you know, again, her, her, her. You know, she sees her father have incredible amounts of downtime. You know, and she, <laughs> she, you know, it's not like she's. She's, you know, she's not um, uh, Tom Hanks's kid. You know, she's, she's, you know, she's like oh, her. Uh, uh, pardon? <laughs> Either one. My point is it's not a question of which kid I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm not talking about either Chet or Colin. That's not the point. It's the phenomenology <laughs> of watching your dad sit around a lot, which your daughter does. Yeah, you, you can be the 
Holy shit. Look at that. <laughs> Why don't you have a mic? Oh, that's right. It's not your fucking interview. Good Lord, woman. <laughs> You don't want a chat. You want a Colin. I know you want a Colin. I know you absolutely want a Colin. By all means, you want a Colin. But you don't think Colin has a skewed perspective on this business? Uh, he's a great actor, and he's a nice guy. Thank God. Super nice guy. I've met him. Super nice guy. But you don't think he, he, he would have to have a skewed... He's got the... His dad is the only man... No, one of two men to win two consecutive Oscars in history. You're telling me that guy doesn't have a slightly skewed perspective of the, the ups and downs of this business? If he had been born during like that lull after bosom buddies, I'd say, okay, this guy knows what's up, but he wasn't. That, He's too young. That's like being one of the guys in Metallica's kid and being a musician, which a couple of them are. It's like, uh, where where are you going with that, buddy? Yeah, yeah. Good but luck. It's, it might. It's not. It's not going to be all soccer stadiums, kid. No. <laughs> Precisely. Yep. You want a whole podcast about Chet, like a serial type podcast where we just talk about <laughs> Chet Hanks and just kind of try to figure out what happened there. I had this is horrible. I'm just talking. To, I've never met the guy. He's probably perfectly nice. I, 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 I don't know him. I'm just trying to give everybody that I'm just trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. This is a, this is a directional mic. You're not really as on this mic as you think you are. This is like right here. <laughs> So it just sounds like I'm, I'm just screaming in the door of empty room, kind of. You, you, I sound crazier than usual. Gentlemen, I'm so sorry. Oh, All don't. good, brother. Yeah, I, I actually think that's comedy gold right there, brother. <laughs> they so, think it's comedy uh, gold. <laughs> Before we get into uh, you meeting your wife, the, the one that you were just having that <laughs> lovely conversation with, um, so did you ever ask your dad, like, he? they moved from whatever town that was in Ohio where they were about to get on stage for the first time, where that was like the only theater in town. And then they moved back to New York city where there is an abundance of theaters. Um, Did you ever ask him like, why, why didn't you ever try your hand at it again? I didn't ask him that, but I asked him at one point he was, he, there was some, we knew a ton of actors because I grew up in the in Midtown West Side of Manhattan, which is the theater district. And we knew a lot of actors who did theater and who were had a lot of day jobs and were struggling, which is one of the reasons it took me so long to get into the business, because it was like this is it's scary out there. It's it's really unreliable, you know, and I remember one of his friends suggesting that he should look into getting a voiceover agent or the friend was like, I can Bruce, I can introduce you to my voiceover agent. And I was like, yeah, you should do that. You've got a great voice. You should absolutely do that. And he's like, ah, it just doesn't sound like uh, something I'd, I'd be good at. And he just really just immediately went to the place of defeat and like, I'm going to be rejected. So why bother? Um, and I, and again, he also harbored this idea that gave me the title of the book, which is that acting is no job for a man, uh, which is a quote he attributed to uh, to Spencer Tracy, who watch this full circle moment is the other actor who won two consecutive Oscars besides Tom <laughs> Hanks. Um, but the uh, yeah, I think there was just a lot of fear 
that he would never have admitted to. But look, you know, it is it can be a very humbling business, you know. And if you're a proud man, um, you you it's it's going to take uh, you're going to eat a lot of shit in this business, you know. Um, and there's going to be times where you things are going really well, uh, and there's going to be a lot of times where uh, they're just not interested, or they went a different way, um, or you're too old, or you're too young, or you're too whatever, and um, you it's hard not to take that personally but the people who last into their 50s as i have have learned not to take it personally <laughs> yeah so he was probably afraid of rejection right and just comfortable at yeah a steady thing right yeah i think he just i think he 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 felt he needed that steadiness even though he i think he kind of resented it Sure. But you know what? I misspoke. Actually, I said that they fired him from the paper industry. They didn't fire him. And this is clarified in the book. They um, somebody younger got promoted past him. And my father, in a pit, in a fit of, of ego and umbrage, uh, quit. But he was around my age at the time. And throwing yourself into the the corporate job market when you're 50 is different than throwing yourself into the audition world when you're 50. You know, right. they're always looking for for, you know, they're, they're always going to need, you know, tight ass principles or or mean spirited executives, you know, and that's my bread and butter these days. So come on down. You know, I'm I'd love to do it. Um, you need a creepy authority figure. Hi there. <laughs> Look no further. <laughs> but my father had a bachelor's degree, no graduate degree um, and and 20 years in sales, but never quite got his footing again. And I think it was a really scary and frankly, humiliating time for him, you know, and I watched that happen and I watched my mom's business kind of go under and I had to loan her money. And it was just a real lesson of you might as well at least try to do what you want to do, because, you know, any business is going to be hard. So you might as well find the thing that brings you joy and that to which you can add value and do that. And uh, here we are. Yeah. You got your, your start a lot different than um, a lot of the uh, other actors and people that we've talked to on this show. Um, mostly people get their, their start in stage acting, but you, you've never really done that, right? Like, no, I like the, the, you've done like the UCB and stuff like the, the improv stuff. Right? I, I did not have a theater background when I came right. into acting. I, I started taking improv classes um, I joined, uh, my friends had a sketch group and they asked me to join. So I, I did that for a few years and that is how I learned. I mean, I'd already been in a band for a couple of years and I taught high school for a year. So I, I had gotten over a lot of, uh, a lot of stage fright stuff. So that was never a huge issue. Um, I mean, I'm not like some sort of, you know, buddha who just floats onto the stage i still get antsy <laughs> and butterflies but i don't you know i don't have anything that really um dismantles me the way some people who who come into the business do um but i had a lot of improv and a lot of sketch comedy and i tried stand up a couple times just to kind of say that i had done it but yeah i was um in my late 40s before i did a full run of a professional play yeah i kind of worked wow. a little <laughs> bit backwards i don't tell a ton of people that um Although I guess it's kind of it's out and about now, but I um, I had a weird sense of 
when I started booking TV work and was actually a series regular on an NBC show, I didn't tell anyone that I had never done a play because I had this weird sense of like survivor guilt or something, you know, because there's people out there with MFAs, you know, people who played Hamlet when they were 20, people who played King Lear when they were 23 in grad school. And I'm like, hi, I did the make ups <laughs> for a couple of years and now I have a trailer, you know, and I, I, I am sympathetic to the people who might resent that, you know, and I, I honor that <laughs> by, uh, but yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I wrote the book is to sort of prove that there is no one true path to this stuff. You know, uh, there's a lot of different ways to find yourself in this business and find your voice. I, I don't do theater necessarily because I, I no longer do theater because I feel like I have to. It's something that's missing. I do theater because it's really fun. It's really, really fun because it's different every night, um, no matter what you're doing. I did a Neil Simon play a couple of years ago, and it was just uh, it was every audience was completely different. And it was really, really interesting and fun. Cool. Have you done Shakespeare yet? I know you're, uh, you're just in you're class. Always just in class. just in class. Just in All class. Right, I'm afraid I've, do never done, I've never done a full production. I know. Thanks, Dad. Nice to hear from you. <laughs> Glad to know I can still disappoint you after all this time. Uh, this how much time do you have, this John? Straight gin. Um, I got another like <laughs> I got you're another, a, I another fifteen. I know you're a liar because yeah. you're sober. So no, damn. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, yeah, I got another fifteen. Uh, Let's do it. All right. Well, we have a bunch of fan questions. Did I miss anything, Ray? I, I have some more stuff. Maybe we'll have to have you back again sometime. I'd love to. I'd love to come back at some point. I um. Yeah, I saw you. You put out an APB on Reddit, which was fascinating. Uh, I'd love to know uh, what um, horrible questions were asked from. Uh, I mean, I suppose it's not like you know checking 4chan for questions, but I, I'm curious. Regardless, uh, what came up? Yeah, yeah. Did I yeah, miss I, anything, right That you wanted. Uh, to you know what? Now let let's pass on the TV show that he happened to be on. You know, it was like a big show, but let's just brush that to the side and go to fan questions. Well, that a lot of the fan questions go there, so ah, uh, well, that uh, takes care of that then. I I also just want to say, <laughs> uh, you are not the John Ross in Grim Cuddy. I watched that entire movie looking for you, and you're... I don't know why I'm credited in that. I don't know why I'm credited in that movie. I'm credited as podcast host. Yeah, I was like, where in the fuck is the podcaster in that? <laughs> I have no idea why I'm in that. It's really strange. Yeah, I. I well, the writer's name is John Ross. I, I saw that, and I'm wondering if it's just some weird hmm. IMDb snafu. But yeah, it I'm not in that film. Uh, hmm. How is it? Yeah, it's okay. Okay, I'm sorry that you only watched you watched an okay movie all the way I watched, through. Pet, I watched Pet that you were in. That was good. That's a solid horror. That's yeah, that a was solid good. horror movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. a good twist. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, great work from Jeanette McCurdy. Um, uh, yeah, that's a uh, that's a fun ride. I like Pat a lot. I'm happy to be yeah. in Pat. All right. Fan questions. Let's see. Nodiver's Ilf Gaming would like to know, how was your experience as the character Barry Kripke and how did you do the speech impediment for it? The the origin story of the speech impediment is in the book. It was not in the the audition sides. They they it was an idea that popped into their head while I was auditioning, and they 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 suggested I I do. Um, they literally said a subtle liquid L like Tom Brokaw does, and I said sure, and started talking like Elmer Fudd and got the job. <laughs> um, the trick, if you're if you're really asking how, if it's a real mechanical question, the trick is that your center of gravity goes to the front of your mouth. Everything comes up point here, and you don't uh, 
so your your R's and your L's are interchangeable at that point because everything is coming up to the the front of your mouth. And uh, I'm not great with dialex or accents or anything like that, but I I if if I can figure out the actual physicality of what my mouth is supposed to be doing, then it goes okay. See, that's exhausting. I'm so out of I'm so out of practice. <laughs> Well, that's the that's the next question here. Uh, how hard Cur- curls cross would like to know how hard was keeping up the lisp consistently? It is not a lisp. It is a <laughs> roticism. I had several. Um, I never called it a lisp. Um, I don't call it a lisp because I myself have a little bit of a sibilant s, you know. So I'm 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 careful about that. Um, shortly after the character debuted, somebody a a speech pathologist called it a roticism. Um, I've also heard it called a gliding L. Um, and, uh, it, it was, you know, I, I, I had to, the great thing about doing a multicam sitcom like that is that you basically rehearsed it like a play. You did four days of rehearsal and then you shot on the fifth night. So you had, I had a whole week to ramp up to it and get used to it. Now, once in a great while, somebody would run out during, uh, at, at the end of a scene and go, uh, we, we actually heard an R on the word <laughs> recess. Um, can we go again? Just so we, just that line. We're just going to do a wild line. So John can get recess. And, and I do that and we'd, we'd move on. But um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was weird because I would sometimes go months between appearances on the show. Uh, so I, I would have to kind of get back into the groove of things. But um, the one really interesting thing about the speech impediment, was how I saved it for like, I showed up and, and did it every day. But when I was working on it at home, I, when I was working on my dialogue at home, I did it without the speech impediment first, just to hear it unfettered, unfiltered as it were, and just make sure the jokes are there. The jokes make sense. The attitude is there. Kripke was kind of a dick, um, kind of a dick. He was a huge dick. He was a, he, he there was some predatory behavior he did on that show. Um, <laughs> Send a dick pic to Maya Bialik's character. It's ghastly. Um, hor- horrific character. Don't do that at home. But I would work on the dialogue without the speech impediment so that the speech impediment wasn't the whole shtick, you know? So there was that was just sort of the gravy, gravy on top of the meat that was the dialogue. And that was good because that helped me, like, figure out the comedic beats and, and make sure that everything else was good so it wasn't just these guys making fun of this guy with a speech impediment, which I wouldn't have been comfortable with. The other thing that is important to say, and if I'm, if somebody asks this question, I wouldn't be surprised because I get this question a lot. So I'll head it off at the pass. The cool thing about Kripke was that as much as he was a prick, he was never a loser. He was a, he was kind of an alpha. He, um, there were a lot of like little contests throughout the, the show throughout the 11 years that I did the show. And he won most of them. Uh, and, and got, he, he had a swagger to him that, that John doesn't have in real life that I always thought was kind of interesting. So what made, I think the, what kept him from being just the butt of a joke was the fact that he, he was a winner. He had, he was never a victim. And I think that, uh, made the character, uh, interesting and appealing. I hope so. We talked to, uh, mm-hmm. someone last week that was on uh, fuller house uh, that was also shot in front of a studio audience. Same way it was every is for Big Bang Theory is everything shot in order. And yeah, yeah, there's a couple of times if there's something really complicated or there's a montage uh, 
where there'd just be a lot of quick cuts. They will they will shoot that the day before and then show it to the audience and record the audience's laughter. But for the most part, for a multicam, you shoot it in front of an audience in uh, in sequence. Less so now, post-COVID, things are still kind of up in the air as to how they're doing it. I think the Connors are back to a studio audience. Uh, I just did that show, Neighbors, where they had a very small audience. Um United States of Al, you were just trying to make the crew laugh. That was all. <laughs> just, just just try to crack up the crew, and we'll we'll record that. Um, so it's it's different. But before COVID, it was sort of an industry standard that you you shot it in sequence in front of an audience. Yeah. Do you like doing that? Do you like doing that in front of a live audience? I do. You know, it's it's theater with a safety net. You know, because if if you you are getting that instant feedback from a joke, and then if it and then if you fuck up, as long as you don't do it too often, but if you fuck up occasionally, the audience sees a blooper and they love seeing a blooper. Who doesn't like to see a blooper? You know, sure. Jim Parsons, who played Sheldon, was such a machine. He was so good at just mountains of dialogue, a lot of which he did not understand. He's not a science guy. He's got an MFA <laughs> from San Diego. He is not a science guy by any stretch. Theater MFA all the way. And he would say that he's like, oh, yeah, I'm learning this like, like the way ABBA learned their English lyrics. It's just phonetic. <laughs> I have... I'm just trying to get through it. And he would do it, you know, masterfully once in a while he'd fuck up. And it was great for the audience to see that like, Oh my God, you know, Superman actually does have a kryptonite. Look at this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, But it's, it's fun. And then what's, what's really exciting. Here's the dirty little secret is when a joke tanks and they frantically write a new joke and give (laughs) that to you. And you have to just like, they go, here's your new joke. And you just say it back to them. Like, okay, we're going to shoot. Just like that. Just like that. That's a high that's pretty hard to beat. That's pretty, that's a nice little rush of adrenaline. And when that second joke works, oh my God, you've saved the day. The writers are happy. <laughs> the audience is happy. It's, it's, there's a lot of dopamine that goes coursing for something like that. Yeah, multicam is fun to do. Very cool. Um, all right, let's see. Uh, life by 5059. I've always wondered about Kripke's personal life. Did he have a girlfriend? friends family etc um that's a really good question i did too um in the scripts there was frequent references to him uh uh paying for sex workers (laughs) (laughs) um but i like to think that he had at the very least some sort of online gaming community where (laughs) he was accepted and (laughs) and loved and uh, um, he was very abrasive, but he seemed very comfortable in his own skin. And I don't think he necessarily minded being alone all the time. So uh, uh, the question is, I don't think so, but I think it's OK. OK. Uh, Miss Angela 66. Did you know? Do you know if there were any Kripke storylines that got squashed? Yeah, I do. Actually, there was one where I was going to they were going to keep me off the show for like a year which was not unheard of. Sometimes I, I think it was one time I went like a full 12 months without being on the show, but I was going to come back with the speech impediment completely gone and just overcompensating everything, every R and L just hitting it really hard. Hello, Sheldon Cooper. <laughs> and, uh, and, but I don't think they were like, I, I was like, so what happens then to him personally? Like, does he become a nice guy? Is he more of a dick now that he doesn't have a speech <laughs> impediment? Where do we go with that? And, I, and they never quite panned that out. 
Um, but that, as far as I know, that was the one that came the closest to not being used. And I think there were kicking around. Oh, you know, there's one episode where I was clearly going to ask out Mayim's character and like the audience turned on me. <laughs> the audience was not fucking having it at all. And you could tell like, oh, uh, the people have spoken. They don't want the storyline. <laughs> Um, and they and it was one of those moments where they like we got to come in, we got to give you a new joke because you're no longer asking uh, uh, Amy out. That's not fucking happening. And um, we we it was the episode with the fencing in it. I don't remember what the jokes were, but I, I remember I thought it was really funny. I, I said something kind of crass about my intentions with Amy. The audience was like, no, 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 no. And um, and then I got a much more vanilla joke for the next take. <laughs> uh, so that was interesting. Nice. All right, um, I, hey Casey, I think we're getting close ahead. here, buddy. Yeah, I think yeah, we're getting yeah, yeah. close to the time. I, I, have, here. I have two more. All Dunn right. Dawson, what was your favorite Kripke storyline? You know, it's it, it's not going to be an answer you want to hear. People want to hear <laughs> that. No, seriously, because there there were a few like real set pieces. There was the episode where I teach them fencing. There's an episode where Sheldon and I play basketball together, and it goes as uh, exactly how you think it might. Um, there's an episode where the only thing I do in the entire episode, I'm on screen for one minute of the show's 22 minutes. And I just scream at Siri who can't understand what I'm saying. <laughs> and uh, it's like 60 seconds of me. And that's the only thing I do in the episode. But my favorite episode, honest to God is one where we are, it's discovered that Cooper and I are working on the same research and our research overlaps and we have to work together and we spend the whole episode in his office. And it was just Jim and I. And honest to goodness, I'm not just saying this. Jim is a wonderful actor. He's giving. He's generous. Generous. He changes things from take to take. He's malleable and fun. And just to have like a no frills one-on-one scene with him was a real treat. I think it's called the Kripke Cooper inversion. It has Kripke's name in the title. I can't remember the name of the episode. But that one, joke for joke and moment for moment, that's my favorite Big Bang episode. Of the Very ones cool. I'm in. Very cool. All right. I have one more thing to say here. Princess Sparkles 87 would like to hear about your audition and how you got the role. But I'm going to say go buy the book because it's in the book. And then uh, Moat, the Moat Callen uh, would like to know why do you look so freaking hot in the picture that Deluxe Edition posted on their Instagram page? It was it was the picture that you're publicist sent us your oh because um a great comedian who's also a photographer named steve agee took that photo and the light ah. was great um and i like to think i am growing uh uh just a dash more distinguished as i plummet through middle age uh but i i thank you very much for uh for that uh lovely comment but yeah uh steve agee for your headshot needs in the greater la area <laughs> Very you know, cool, you guys have Steve Agee? You should have Steve Agee on. He was on Peacemaker. He's John DeConnor yes, on Peacemaker. Yes, absolutely. I would love to talk absolutely. to him. Yeah, I've, I've, I've reached out. No, I've yeah. never heard back, so maybe I, this will be the little boost. I actually... Let, uh, me, I, let, me, let me grease those wheels. Yeah. <laughs> I just I just finished watching the first season of Peacemaker for like the sixth time last week. I mean, I love oh, really? that show. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, it's great, and he's great on it. He's doing career best work on that show. Oh, it's, absolutely. Uh, he's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, really good, man. John, thank you so much, man, for your time. Tell everyone where they can find you, where they can find the book, all that good stuff. Um, the book is in your better bookstores. 
Um, and uh, you can find me on Instagram at John Ross Bowie. I think this was really comprehensive. I know we had to cut it a little short. I think this was very comprehensive. I think we covered a lot of ground, guys. Yeah, man. Thank yeah. you oh, so much. Absolutely. I have more notes, so uh, definitely anytime <laughs> you want to come back, uh, we'd love I'll to have back. you, man. I'll come back. Yeah. I'm proud of us. I'm proud of us. Yeah, write another book and come back. Okay, deal. Deal. I'm on it. <laughs> nice. We can t- we'll talk about Heathers next time. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, all Heathers. All Heathers all the time. I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> all right, man. Thank you, John. Yes, all thank right. you. Hey, thanks for having me, guys.